Welcome to Careers for the Blind. I'll be your host, Harrison Hoyes. And in this interview series, we'll be having conversations with blind and visually impaired people discussing their career paths. We'll have an opportunity to hear about the struggles they had along the way, advice that made them more effective in their careers, and in general, what has helped them lead happy and successful lives. In July 2020, I had a conversation with Ryan Strunk. Ryan started to lose his sight at a very early age, and by the time he was done with college, had no usable sight. He has had many different jobs throughout his life, but is currently a manager at United Healthcare and the Minnesota Chapter President for the National Federation of the Blind. Here's my conversation with Ryan as he shares his life story and advice to help us with our careers and to lead happy lives. First of all, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate you taking some time to Absolutely. talk about yourself and, and your experiences. If you can just tell me a little bit about your your background, tell me about a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I grew up in Nebraska and back in the 80s and 90s. So I was born in a town called Fremont, which at the time was about 25,000 people. And we knew we were big time in Nebraska because we had two Burger Kings. So okay. that, was our, that was our claim to fame right there and a super Walmart. But... Um, Pretty normal childhood, played too many video games uh, by getting right up close on the screen. And, uh, you know, school was okay for me. I was smart enough to do the work, but one of the things that uh, went hand in hand with my blindness, which I only just realized about, was uh, an undiagnosed ADHD. And so for a lot of years, the work that I did was... <laughs> subpar because I wasn't doing a ton of work. And because I was a blind kid, I was also, they let me get away with a lot of that stuff and, and just chalked it up to blindness as opposed to chalking it up to ADHD. Okay. I got through high school, nothing special. I went off to college and was a music major. In fact, I got my degree in music education. And I realized that both because of a combination of you know, my sort of lack of follow through and those sorts of things as related to the undiagnosed ADHD, as well as finally having the opportunity to teach high school in my ninth semester, which had been my goal, that music really wasn't a field that was going to work well for me. After I finished my musical training and got my degree there, I bounced around from job to job for quite a while. I was a canvasser and fundraiser for a number of political and environmental and social causes, and uh, all under a company called Hudson Bay, which was a fancy way of saying we did a lot of telephone canvassing, but I'm proud to say we were not telemarketers. After Hudson Bay, when I got done with that, we, uh, both my wife and I, got the opportunity to move to Honolulu and teach at the Ho'opono Center for the Blind out there. I taught Braille, she was a rehab counselor, and being 24 at the time and having no kids, it was an amazing way to get involved in something new and adventurous and that was cool and still enabled me to be a teacher, but was just uh, really exciting given what we were doing. Let's go back just a moment and sure. <clears throat> talk to me a little bit about uh, your site during your early years. So you had some site, you were playing video games and getting yeah. through school. Mm -hmm. What was, what was ultimately, what was causing your vision loss? 
So I have Lieber's congenital amaurosis, which means that I was born with some degree of sight loss. And so it was, it was enough that I have always had to be a Braille reader. My parents got recommendations from my eye doctor when I was in first or second grade that I ought to use a monocular. And I would have had to, to hold this magnifying glass up to my eye, and I would have had to read two-inch tall letters. And they thankfully got the advice that that was a terrible idea. Because the whole world is not going to be built for you in such a way that you're always going to be able to use a magnifying glass with two inch tall letters. And I think it's probably what their thought was and, and what I agree with now is that you can do those sorts of things and stand out. But if you do, you will probably not stand out for the reasons that you necessarily want to. It's, uh, it's a little bit tough for somebody to be able to stand 10 feet behind you and read over your shoulder. So I was always a Braille reader. I've always been a cane user. I had my first cane in my hand when I was two years old and had the benefit of some really good teachers, uh, chiefly among them a lady named Kim Adams, who was just magnificent about making sure that uh, I got the skills that I needed. So you didn't go to any special school for the blind. You went to a regular school right alongside other kids. Oh, yeah. I was, uh, I was in public school all 13 years. Okay. Kindergarten through senior year. And then college as well. You, yep. You were, what other kinds of technologies were you using that allowed you to, you know, get through school and be competitive? So back in the 80s, early 90s, there was some stuff, but nothing that made it all the way to Nebraska. So I had a Braille writer, a Perkins Braille writer, and I used a Slayton stylus for absolutely everything. I think right around sixth or seventh grade, I got my first Braille and speak and thought that that was the most amazing thing ever. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then finally got on to Windows. I think I got on Windows 95 when I was about 18. A little bit of a late bloomer, but, uh, but it came in handy there. But for the first uh, seven years of my schooling or so, it was all Braille, and you know whether it was on the Braille writer or the Slayton stylus. And then ultimately, when you went to uh, apply for jobs, what was that experience like? So the first two that I had, particularly when I was in school, I had a paper route for a little while. And that didn't last terribly long because you delivered papers once a week. They dropped off a big stack at your house at uh, about 630 in the morning. And you had to fold and bag all of the papers and then carry them in these big canvas bags to the people's houses. And it was the kind of circular where... You know, you got one once a week and you usually threw it out. But they paid us $5 a week to deliver to about 120 houses, and it was just terrible. So (laughs) that did not end up lasting very long. Um, But after that, when I was still in high school, I worked for a company called First Group, and there we did do telemarketing, and I apologize for that. But that that was a job where we had scripts, and so I brailled all of my scripts, and when we had to read prompts, it was like, if somebody says, are you a recording, you should change to page 18 and read the exact script that says, I'm sorry, sir, for any confusion, but I am not a recording. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, that was all done through alternative techniques. When I got to Hudson Bay after college, technology had advanced somewhat. By then we were using JAWS on the computer. And at least at the beginning, I thought that I could use Braille to read the scripts in order to do the things I needed to do. The problem was that um, they changed the script so frequently. A word here, a word there, and I finally started 
you know, I would roll the paper back into my brailler too many times and it just it got too heavy. So I developed a real talent early on for being able to move through the script a word at a time with control right or control left arrow and uh, read the script as it was currently written on the computer screen. And did pretty well at that for a while. In fact, I got into management for a little bit there, but it just, it was not ultimately my calling. Okay, so your decision to leave was was your own? Oh, yeah. No, yeah. I, I have yet to be fired from a job. <laughs> okay, good. No, good. no, I take that back. Um, I, did, I did get let go from an internship once, but that is a long story, and I will protect the guilty, i.e. me, for the mistakes that I made then, unless you really want to know them. But they weren't no. mine related. Well, I, that would really be the reason why I would want to want to know if there was... Yeah, no. No. So, no, it was because um, I was being a pain in the neck. Okay. When applying for jobs, were your employers asking you any questions about your, your site or about how you would do the job? I have been really lucky to have so many connections over the years that have helped me to get all of the jobs that I have. One of the things that's been really amazing about being involved in the National Federation of the Blind is, at first, all of the major jobs I got past Hudson Bay were jobs that I got word of mouth. They were building a program in Hawaii. They wanted people to go out and teach. One of the guys who was help running the coaching pro uh, program put in my name, and, and I got invited out there. Um, and since, you know, when we did the interview process, they'd already seen me working as a temp, and they had no qualms about blindness. When I moved to Austin and uh, after Honolulu and worked as a contract sales for uh, sales slash special assistant on the NFB's Braille literacy campaign, it was because I'd contacted some people when we decided we were going to leave Hawaii and said, can I come work for you and do you have anything available? And, and they found that job for me. You know, when I, when I went to Blind Incorporated, Blind Incorporated, they knew it was a, it was a job where it's all about empowering blind people. So there, there was never any question from those guys. Like you can, you can do this and you can do it well. Target. When I got to target, there were people who were blind who were already working there. So there was no particular question from, uh, from my employer as to how a blind person would do it because he'd already seen people before me that had been blazing a trail. And then the last of them working at United healthcare, the thing that was really great about that is that was word of mouth from somebody that I used to work with at Target. Colleague of mine, sighted lady, who is delightfully progressive and wonderful about uh, everything related to disability and to just all the different differences and, and diaspora that somebody can have. She's truly fantastic. But she had, when she went over to United Healthcare, she said, you know, eventually I'm, I would love for you to come work for me. So I have not had the experience of the traditional interview where you go into someplace absolutely cold and say, you know, I'm, I have to sell myself to you because through the connections that I've made over the years through the National Federation of the Blind and then through the connections and the friendships that I've made in my other jobs, I've been able to just sort of sell myself in my daily work. Yeah, that's great. And the fact that this woman you know, wants you to come on board to the new company, I think really yeah. speaks to your ability to do the job. Yeah, she's, she's a neat lady. And I appreciate that she has faith in me because this is my first real foray into management. And um, she has been just a saint 
in teaching me all the things that I need to know. What was your role at Target? And then what was your role now at, what is your role now at United Healthcare? Sure. At Target, I was an accessibility consultant. Started out full-time in testing and was working on some mobile stuff as well as the app. And my job there was to make sure that the digital apps and sites that we released, at least in my corner of the world, were released to be accessible. So I would conduct tests, try to break things, find out what uh, read well with screen readers, what didn't. I consulted with designers to make sure they were designing with accessibility concepts in mind. And we got really good at it, you know, building relationships with people, building rapport with people. We were able to do guided consultation all the time. Whereas the traditional method was sighted guy sits down with a PDF, marks it up. What I would do is I would sit down with the designers and I would say, okay, I want you to, to explain this to me top to bottom, everything I ought to know, what it looks like, and, and I will give you all the feedback that you need to know. And that solved a couple of really important problems. One, we made sure that the app was accessible. Two, every time they sat down with me to do this work, it was a masterclass in accessibility. Not because I'm a master, but, but because it was that sort of format, right? Here's what you need to consider. Here's why you need to do it. And there are a number of designers that we have worked with over the years, even there at Target, who've gone on to other places. In fact, I met one of them at UHC, who uh, have taken those concepts and integrated them into the work that they do. So it propagated far beyond what we did at Target. And then the last was that it also gave us the ability to refine things. So if somebody described a thing to me that they said, oh, and we think the design will cause people to, to do this and it'll behave like this, I could sit down and, and sort of ask questions of them. Well, have you thought about doing it this way in a way that is both clearer for people with cognitive challenges and more accessible for screen readers? So, um, you know, what, what, was, what would have been taken as me using my colleagues as readers was actually my opportunity to expand the scope of their knowledge around accessibility, which was pretty fun. And, you know, particularly as if accessibility is an emerging field, it was really great to be able to build champions in that space. And then now at United Healthcare? At United Healthcare, my job is the management side of that. So United Healthcare is a much, much bigger company than Target is. When I left Target, it was Fortune 38 or 39. Uh, when I started at United Healthcare, it was Fortune 6. So it's a very big company, a lot of people, particularly on the business side. And so because of that, our properties are much, much wider. You know, Target, you had Target.com and a couple of apps and some, you know, related businesses. United Healthcare, when I got there, had something like 300 websites and 38 apps. Wow. So what Suda needed us to do was to bring in a team of people who would be able to break those uh, sites and apps up between them and then be able to provide that same accessibility consultation. But because of our work with so many sites and so many apps, and there's only four of us, the we contract with the Optum Accessibility Center of Excellence, and they are the team that does the testing. So my job now is to take a whole bunch of those sites and services and make sure that they are being tested and that they are being deployed accessibly. So I'll still test every now and then to get my hands dirty and make sure that I'm still current on my knowledge, 
making sure that I know the products and the, and the apps and things that they're working on. But at this point, my job is, is full-time management. When you do some testing, are you looking at the, the sites using different devices, you know, Android, iPhone, that sort of stuff? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, JAWS for Windows screen reader, NVDA. We try it on a couple of browsers when it's on the phone. Yeah, it's, IO, it's iOS and Android. Um, and we use a variety of different checkpoints and things according to the web content accessibility guidelines to make sure it's all being done right. Do you have any idea how many people use it using accessible technologies? You know, we don't have hard numbers on that. But what I can tell you is this. There are as of the 2010 census, and hope I'm looking forward to getting some more updated numbers than that. But as of the 27 or the 2010 census, there were around 56 million people who self-identified as having a disability. What we know is that one in three seniors, age 65 are, or older, self-identify as having a disability. So we know that there are a number number of people out there who use this information and who do so in a way that is, that is meaningful. And in fact, we also know that a lot of good accessibility concepts keep your layout simple and uncomplicated. Make sure that you use high contrast colors. A lot of these things are good for people in general. And so the work that we do touches on people with disabilities a lot, but it also helps a lot of people who don't have disabilities. One of the things I remember working on was a test some years back where we open, we, we put a uh, flag into an app to see how many people had changed their font size from the default on their phone. And in one day, we got 700,000 hits. And of those 700,000 hits, a full 35% of people had changed their font size. 10% wanted it smaller, 25% wanted it larger. And that means that potentially there are 25% of people who may not even have directly self-identified as having a disability, but maybe they don't see as well as they used to, or mm -hmm. maybe they just like the look of bigger type. They weren't getting it in that app because they, 25% of them, one in four people wanted it larger than they were getting. Right. So right. this is a really roundabout way of saying we don't have numbers on assistive technology, but we know there are tons of people out there who benefit from accessibility work and that there are 57 million people with a disability who directly benefit from it. You've been very lucky to get all of these jobs through connections. Do you have any advice for people that are looking for, for work and how they might go about it? You know, I read a book a long time ago uh, when I was back in Hawaii, so gosh, it would have been 12 or 13 years ago, called Don't Sabotage Your Success, Make Office Politics Work. And it was a book about how the caliber of the work you did is very important, but almost as important is the interactions that you had with your colleagues, your peers, and particularly your boss. And the idea was that one of your primary jobs as an employer or an employee is to make your boss successful, is to carry out their vision. And so with all of those things in mind, my goal in the workplace has not only been to be effective, but also to be collegial, to be uh, friendly, to be 
willing to help people when needed and to make sure that people enjoyed having me around. And I think, you know, that's not to say glad hand and be lazy. That's why I want to say again, the caliber of your work, the quality of your work is important. But there is absolutely the, I, in my experience, the I would like to have a beer with him test is, is very much something that's valid. And so having people that say, you know, that Ryan, he, he's a smart guy, and I just like him, has, has been part of my goal, not because I am insecure, though I am sort of insecure, um, but because you want, you want people to feel like they want to be around you. And people that they want to be around are people that they want to keep around. So I think, I think the thing that I would give advice to people, because my jobs have been through networking. But again, another statistic I heard years ago is that over 60% of jobs are never truly interviewed for in the standard sense. Their word of mouth, their connections, all that sort of stuff. And so I've leaned into that really hard. Is you have to be genuine. And you have to be, you have to take yourself seriously. Um, and when I say take yourself seriously, that means that you have to have your own self-worth and your own self-value, and you have to make sure that people recognize that. I had at one of my jobs a manager who would love to come into the office and he would say things to me like, oh gosh, Ryan, that's a beautiful blaze orange shirt you're wearing. Well, of course, I don't own a blaze orange shirt. I never have, I never will. But the reason he would make jokes like that is because he felt like he could. And I would much rather him make a joke at me about something that I could control as opposed to making a joke about my disability. And so I did not let that sort of stuff happen. I would go, you know, I, I called him out on it more than once, told him that this was not okay because I do not need someone in management, which is a place that I aspired to be. And with colleagues whose job it was to determine my pay raises every year, think of me as the joke. So I wanted people to understand, yeah, I'm blind, but that doesn't mean that it gets to be something you, uh, you get to make fun of. And I know that that is a bit of a controversial position because there are people who say, look, if you take yourself too seriously, then everybody's going to think you're uptight and stuffy. And you know, I am the first person to go out of my way to not be uptight and stuffy. And I'll tell you a story about that in a moment because I think it's germane. But when it comes to my blindness, hands off. Because I need you to see me as a serious contender for any positions that are out there. But that doesn't mean that, uh, that you shouldn't have something about your brand or something that makes you unique. And one of the, the places where we did this at Target, and the guy that I did this to still tells the story, uh, a colleague of mine had found a list of weird things to do on the internet. And one of the things that she, that was in there was um, to eat vanilla pudding out of a mayonnaise jar. And so I went home and I got a jar of olive oil mayo and we scraped all the mayonnaise into a Tupperware and we rinsed it out really good. And, and then I shook up two boxes of vanilla pudding in this mayonnaise jar. And so we're sitting at our desk, brand new team. They're still trying to figure out what to to do with us how how to interact with us and and we were the new guys in town and and unfortunately sometimes accessibility can be seen as the guard dog and so craig comes back from lunch and he's sitting there eating and i pull out my mayonnaise jar and i start eating out of it and i say hey craig what are you eating and he's sitting at his desk and he goes oh i'm just having you know such and such and 
So I start grilling him about it and being like, oh, is it any good? I've never had it. And finally he turns around because I think he was irritated that I was asking him so many questions. And he stops mid-sentence and he goes, are you eating mayonnaise? <laughs> and I said, oh, yeah, I'm on this, I'm on this diet where you, know, you, you get uh, fat as your primary source of nutrients and your body eventually switches over. This was before keto was a thing. And I'm, I'm really just, you know, trying to, to switch over from carbohydrates to fat as an energy source. And, and, uh, and I'm sitting here trying not to laugh, which he said looked like I was gagging. So he's getting all these other people going, oh, my God, look what Ryan is doing. Look what Ryan is doing. And all these people are gathered around me until I finally had to be like, stop laughing and, and you know, almost spitting the stuff out of my nose to be like, no, it's vanilla pudding. But doing that meant that I was no longer the blind guy. I was the vanilla pudding guy. And uh, so that was an identity that I was happy to have because it was something I chose. And so people, you know, that, that loosened people up a lot. And in fact, good. it was, it was a joke we pulled a couple of times because it was worth it. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah. It's, I mean, that's the big thing. Sell, sell, sell yourself as an individual, particularly as an individual, not as a blind individual. Social skills, particularly for blind people, are so under-stressed. And the problem with that, and we, we would see it every now and then, we'd get, we'd get interns in various places where we'd go, and, and you know, not to cast aspersions on any one particular individual, but sometimes you would, you would see these kids who had never really been told, like, what is acceptable to say or to do in, in regular company. And look, I don't want to tell anybody who to be. But if people's most common response to the things you say is, okay, then you're probably doing something wrong. You, know? <laughs> like you, you have to be, I, I don't want to say normal because normal is a judgmental term, but you definitely want to be the kind of person that, that other people are glad you're there and that other people are, if possible, charmed by. Because that, that makes you unique and that makes you stand out. And then the other thing I would say is, is know your tech. I think it's a big thing, particularly if you're getting into a job like I am. I, would, I did not know Excel and Word for the longest time. It never felt like something that I needed to do. I used Word in order to write reports. And when I got to Blind Incorporated, I started teaching Excel, which is when I started doubling down on my learning. But when I got to Target, and then particularly at United Healthcare. I have to draw project trackers all over the place, make sure that we have uh, all an, an understanding of each project and when it's due and all that other sort of stuff. I have my to-do lists all written in Excel. I have to write PowerPoint presentations in order to give speeches. For, for some reason, in most of corporate America, everybody does PowerPoints. So I had to make sure that I knew that as well. And I have not had... You know, in, in talking about selling yourself and in, and in talking about being competent and confident, you will have that competence if you go through the effort of learning your technology. If every time some challenging piece of technology comes up, you have to ask a colleague to help you, then that's, that's the brand that you will inadvertently build for yourself. Right. You know, you've had a certain amount of luck. Um everyone that I've spoken to has had their share of, of, of luck and, you know, hard, yeah, hard work goes into it too. And, and, and thoughtfulness. Look, so much of what we do in life in general is about being in the right place at the right time. 
down to a lot of the privileges that we have, right? I, I did not ask to be born in the United States. I did not ask to have an amazing teacher. These are things that, that fell to me and that did not fall to other people. And I recognize that. The important thing to do, though, is to realize that those gifts that have been given to you, you have a responsibility to use if you want to capitalize on that and to then go to the places that you want to be able to go. If you squander those gifts, then you're out of luck. <laughs> or you better hope that another one comes along. But but you're absolutely right. Luck is a huge factor. And then making sure that when you get that lucky break, you capitalize on it. Throughout your childhood and throughout your careers, uh, what what's something that's challenging that you've faced that, you know, something that you know now, had you known it then, would have really helped you out? I mean, the biggest one is ADHD. Uh, because... So much of the challenges that I faced as a kid were directly attributable to that. Being playing video games entirely too much, not doing homework, that was a that was a huge problem. My follow-through. You know, my my summer vacations were spent in front of the Nintendo for eight, ten hours a day. And that was problematic when it came to really doing anything. And I think a big part of the reason that it was missed is because particularly blind kids, when blind kids are, and for that matter, even blind people do weird things, people don't always hold them accountable for their strange behaviors. And so as a kid, when I would say have wrestling matches with my Slayton style or my uh, stylus and my Braille eraser on the top of my Perkins Braille writer, um, and was causing a god-awful racket, that was hyperactivity manifesting itself. And nobody called me on it. They just figured that was the weird blind kid who, who you know, was doing weird blind kid things. So that was, that was a huge challenge. But beyond that, I think the biggest problems that I have faced specifically with regard to my blindness are related to People not understanding what blindness is, what blind people are capable of, what blind people can do. And so when I did encounter obstacles, particularly in school, uh, when I would try and say, join a choir, and they'd say, oh, I don't know how you're going to get up and, and down from the stage safely. And, you know, what about when we go sing in nursing homes? Well, you, you might trip over something and, you know, that sort of stuff. And I have techniques for all of those things. but the people that would hold me back or the people that would keep me out of things were usually doing it because they just didn't know any better. And as a young kid, I knew that what I was encountering was not right, but I, I didn't have the words or the concepts or the advocacy skills to be able to do something about it. For myself, when I was in going through high school, I still had a, a reasonable amount of vision and still mm -hmm. do, but you know, I was always a slow reader and mm -hmm. looking back on it, yeah, it was because I have blind spots in my vision and that's what's causing me to read slowly. And had I had access to a screen reader or, or, or some type of technology to help me read more quickly, I could have gotten through my schoolwork so much, so much faster. Oh, absolutely. And it's those, those sorts of things where with with hindsight, 
we can look back and go, God, if only, <laughs> which is, which is a fun and also terrifying thing to look at. And I think, but it's also why I think the advocacy that we're doing is so important and why us sharing these opportunities is something that is, has the potential to be really helpful for people because I don't want another kid to grow up blind and have these sorts of things overlooked. I, I want the kids in the next generation to have it better than we did so that when they're doing their podcasts uh, 30 years from now, they have very different stories to tell. Right. That's the hope. Mm-hmm. We'll do what we can. So tell me a little bit about your role as the president for the Minnesota chapter. Sure. How did you how did you get into that position? What I guess what made you want to be get into that position and you know what kinds of things are you doing now? I genuinely feel I've been a member of the organization for 20 years. And I have seen the work that we do in a variety of states. You know, this is the fourth one that I have lived in. And I have seen the positive impact that we're able to have both through the work that's happening in the training centers, through the legislative victories that we've had on everything from voting to rights for veterans to uh, accessible materials, all those sorts of things. And I have enjoyed being a part of it because I have seen that we are an organization that gets things done. And so I have been a member of the Minnesota affiliate since 2010 and was perfectly happy to just be a member for a long time. I became the president of the Minneapolis chapter, the Metro chapter, in 2014 or 2015, and did that for a couple of years and really enjoyed it. But uh, we had a couple of shifts in things, and uh, I, was, I was asked if I would be interested in running for the presidency in 2017. So... I've been doing it for the past three years and change, uh, or I'm sorry, two years and change, almost three years. And it has been a, a roller coaster, but I, it has been a good one. It's, um, I think, one of the things that's been really amazing about working for United Healthcare and learning to be a manager there is that it has helped me to be a better affiliate president. But the work that we do here in Minnesota is very much a Minnesota version of the work that we do nationally. So we advocate to make sure that, say, right now, one of our big things is that people will be able to vote accessibly in the 2020 election and be able to do so accessibly from absentee. You know, with COVID-19 going on right now, the last thing a bunch of people want to do is strap on a mask and go vote in person at a polling place, especially if you have the ability to vote by mail. But we want to make sure that that process is accessible. So uh, we do legislative work like that. We have a severe teacher shortage here in the state where qualified teachers of blind students are retiring at a crazy rate. And we want to make sure that the next crop of blind kids, the ones we were talking about just a little bit ago, have a quality education in the skills that they need to be successful. And we know that that comes with access to Braille, to technology, to orientation and mobility training, learning how to travel with a white cane, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, so a lot of, of my job is to coordinate efforts like that, but also to be a sounding board for people 
who just need a place to talk about their blindness and who need uh, to to sort of develop an understanding of what is there for me now? What can I do? What can I be capable of? And and to make sure that either I help them or I hook them up with other people who can. And of course, one of the big places that does that here in the state of Minnesota is our very own training center, Blind Incorporated, which is really a just a shining gem in the state and in our affiliate, but really across the country as far as adjustment to blindness training centers go. So one of the things that I do both as affiliate president and as the secretary on that board of directors is to make sure that Blind Incorporated can be successful, can get the finances they need to continue their work, and to make sure that students still want to come through the doors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I went to Blind Incorporated from the state of Pennsylvania. So it's definitely oh, well known throughout the country. Sure. Do you mind if we talk a little bit about your personal life? You oh, sure. Met- I'm an open met- book. Okay, great. Thank you. <laughs> you mentioned that you're you're married. When did you get married and how did you meet your wife? So, uh, you know, I talked about all my connections coming through NFB. <laughs> that was one of them. She, uh, my wife, Randy, was... A was just coming to UNL where I was going to school and uh, I met her through our student division. She wanted to get involved there and uh, we ended up getting involved. So we started dating in 2003, got married in 2006 and uh, we've been married ever since. Great. Is she blind or sighted? She is also blind. Okay. And uh, did you mentioned earlier that you know, you were in Honolulu without kids. Do you have kids now? No, never, never really felt called to do that. Okay. No, yeah, we don't have any kids. We do have a cat. He is nothing <laughs> like having kids. I want to make sure that all the uh, all the parents out there who are uh, sort of grabbing at their chests right now, going, "You have no idea." I don't. I don't. <laughs> My cat's a pain in the neck, but he's not a kid. Tell me about something that you like to do for fun. I would say. Um, you know, one thing that, that might be interesting. Yeah, I was I was mentioning a bit ago too about finding your brand or finding things that make you unique. And I think that one of the ways that that can be really helpful for people is to find something to do outside of work. You know, I know when I moved to Minnesota, the first three years that I was up here, I did very little except work and go home and and then lather, rinse, repeat. And one of the things that that caused for me was a really big bubble in my thinking, because the only people that I really spent any time with were my wife and my coworkers. And so your thoughts after a certain point sort of hit stagnation point. So for me in 2013, one of the things that I did was I got involved in the improv. And... The improv is one of those things which I understand that it's this trendy thing to do right now that everybody wants to make fun of, which is okay. We can take it. But there is so much about improv that is amazing as far as developing as as an individual, right? Because from in 2010 to 2013, I saw the same people. All the people I saw were teachers and administrators. In 2013, when I joined improv, I was hanging out with a bartender and an insurance salesman and a massage therapist and a daycare worker and an auto parts salesman. 
And suddenly there was this whole new series of people and this whole new world of thinking that I was opened up to by broadening my horizon. Not to mention improv is just amazing for enabling you to be able to think on your feet, to give a speech or a presentation without using a bunch of filler words. Or if you get asked to do something at the last possible moment, you have the confidence to know that you can jump up there and do something with it and not flounder. Because, as the game of experts will tell you, everything you say is right. And I, I think what I would say to anybody who is wanting to make themselves a more well-rounded worker, find a hobby. And if you have the spoons for it, find a hobby with other people. If it's a book club, if it's a choir, if it's a running club, something like that, just to get out of your regular stasis and into a place where your thoughts can be expanded and you can get access to people that you otherwise wouldn't have access to. Yeah, that's great. I, I feel like a lot of blind and visually impaired people are somewhat hidden from the rest of the world because that's largely what I was doing for a long time was going to work and then just going home and, uh, you know, started to expand my social circles uh, a little bit more purposefully because I was finding the same thing, just going to work and going home. And yeah, uh, your, your world becomes pretty small actually. Absolutely. Uh, when you, when you do that. So, and there's just, there's not as much fulfillment in it. And you know, like I said, eventually you stagnate. And I think as far as blind people sort of falling into that position, I think in many instances you're right. And I think a big part of that is because the world inside your house is a much safer world. Not in terms of physical danger, not in terms of the, the true, you know, the, the things out there that will quote unquote hurt you, but because, you know, getting on, doing improv, for example, was going into brand new spaces. It was getting onto stages. I do not do improv with my cane. So it was learning to take risks and to put myself in situations that were challenging for me. And I think for a lot of people, that's a scary prospect, particularly if you've been told your whole life that you shouldn't do things that are risky. You shouldn't do things that are dangerous. Stay where it's safe stay where you don't have to do anything that could put you in discomfort. How are you getting onto the stage without your cane? The funny thing about a lot of improv stages is that they're short. Um, and it's not, you know, that's not to say I couldn't do theater. I know lots of blind people who do, but it is to say that usually when you do improv, you enter either from the wings, but most often from the audience. And so I will run up to the stage with my cane and then I'll toss it down at the base of the stairs and run up the three stairs and take my place uh, with other people. So, and when we enter from the wings, you know, I'll set it on the side and then I'll, and then I'll go out. But the other thing that I make sure that I always do is that I pace out the stage ahead of time so that I have some sense of where I'm going and what I'm doing. And that when we go bounding out onto the stage, I'm not bounding straight out into empty air. Mm-hmm. Right. A little preparation always helps, which I wish I would have been able to tell my eighth grade, eighth grade choir teacher. Yeah. What other hobbies are you undertaking that bring a lot of joy to your life? You know, for a while, I enjoyed doing CrossFit. That was uh, a lot of fun. 
And I think one of the things that is really amazing about CrossFit is that most people get into CrossFit because they have something else going on, right? Um, the people that get in, like the people who are your average workaday, I guess you might say vanilla people, and I, I love vanilla ice cream, but I say you know, your, your average Joe is just going to go to a gym, is just going to go to a Planet Fitness or something like that and get on the treadmill for a bit if they don't just run around their neighborhood. The people who do CrossFit, and in my experience, really believe in the community and the team and all that other sort of stuff. And so what's been great about being involved in CrossFit is just how much of a team atmosphere there is, particularly when it comes to matters of um, accommodation. So when our job is to, you know, there's 12 of us in a class and our job is to push a sled from one side of the gym to the other, the instructor has no problem whatsoever just running alongside me and, and making sure that things go straight. I've, I've just had wonderful community with that group of people. Unfortunately, that gym is now on the complete opposite side of Minneapolis from where I work. So I'm going to have to figure out what to do about that. Also, there's a pandemic on. Right. So um, when, you know, not, not especially now that things have gotten quiet, I've gotten into a bunch of audio engineering and such myself. Um, I had a few years ago done a fundraiser where I said that I would improvise songs for people if they donated a certain amount of money. And I got a bunch of people to take me up on it, but I got really tired of sitting in front of my piano while Randy held the cell phone in my, in my wood floored living room that just echoed like crazy. So I got uh, a sound card and a little keyboard and a decent microphone and have slowly been recording those songs for people actually writing and recording them and mixing and producing and all that other sort of stuff. So that has been a really fun way to spend time during the pandemic in a way that's still creative and, and getting out there, but that is uh, appropriately socially distanced. Right. Right. And this is exactly how I've chosen to. There you go. Time <laughs> and then, right. I used to go to a CrossFit gym for several years. And then after my daughter was born, I really stepped away from the, the gym. And oh, it's a trip, though, isn't it? Uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. 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 It, it definitely it definitely was a lot of fun. I had I had more time before. My daughter came along, and then similar to your situation where the gym was on the other side of town, <laughs> uh, my gym isn't probably that far away. Mm -hmm. I can actually, I could walk there. It'd probably take about 30 minutes. But once you start to, you know, throw 30 minutes onto an hour class there right. and back, to, you know, two hours out of your day is suddenly a lot of time. And don't forget to shower. Yep, that too. Yeah. <laughs> my my wife is an Ironman. She has uh, she's done a number of triathlons, and she did Ironman a couple of years ago wow. in uh, in Houston. And one of the things that just amazes me about her doing that, aside from the fact that it's an Ironman, because holy cow, I could I I have exercised for a couple of hours before, but never fifteen. Mm -hmm. um, is is just the sheer amount of time and energy that she puts into that sport. It's it's truly impressive. So a two hour workout is just called Thursday for her, 
but I'm with you. I, an hour workout plus an hour of commute and a half hour, you know, or a 10 minute shower. That's a lot of time. I'll get back there eventually. Yeah, absolutely. Might be, might be a few years. Well, in the meantime, you can do push ups with her on your back. I've been doing a few of those. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. That was Ryan Strunk, Minnesota chapter president for the National Federation of the Blind and manager at United Healthcare. Speaking with Ryan has reminded me that it's necessary to maintain other social circles, to have a hobby that keeps you in touch with other people outside of your family and work colleagues. I hope we all can remember that self-advocacy is so important and trying to get along with your colleagues in a way that has nothing to do with your blindness will ultimately help you be more successful in your career. I hope you enjoyed listening to this conversation and thanks for listening.